I'm going to invite Allie forward. She's going to um, read for us the, the sermon that the sermon is based on. It's um, from Jonah uh, chapter 4, verses 5 through 10. I'll just remind us of where we are right now. We're actually at the end of the book of Jonah. This is the last sermon. We're going to head back into our ongoing series in the gospel according to Luke starting next week. But we're finishing our time in Jonah. Uh, it's been quite the journey uh, with Jonah. To recap, Jonah is a prophet. He's a messenger from God. He's, he's commissioned by God to speak God's own words. Um, God called Jonah on this very unique mission, which was to not go to the lost sheep of Israel, which is typically a prophet's job, but go to the hated and distant city of Nineveh, the capital city of the ancient Assyrian Empire. But Jonah, not a typical prophet, he refuses this. He runs the opposite direction. He catches a boat and he sails off to Tarshish. But we see the extent of God's mercy and care, even for wayward prophets. He, he goes to great lengths to bring Jonah back to himself. And so the story of Jonah is, is really a story of God's incredible and tender mercy in the face of human sin, both his prophet and this wicked foreign nation of Assyria. Jonah eventually gets to Nineveh, and he preaches God's message to the city. Uh, and this violent and wicked and cruel city receives the message that God has for them, and they repent en masse. It's an amazing story. Uh, this last section brings us to a conclusion of Jonah's story. Uh, it's the story of Jonah's surprising anger towards God. Uh, ben preached last week on Jonah 4, verses 1 through 5, and we found there that Jonah was angry somehow with Nineveh's repentance. It didn't sit well with him. He's frustrated that people this evil would have turned from their evil, uh, turned to God, and in turn, God would turn and relent from the disaster he promised them. This heats him up. This makes him mad. And so we're asked as we look at verses 5 through 11 of chapter 4, how will this story end? Jonah 4, 5 to 10. Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he could see what would become of the city. Now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah, that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die and said, It is better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, Do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, Yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. And the Lord said, You pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should, I not, and should not I pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left and also much cattle? This is the word of the Lord. Let me pray for us again. Father in heaven, thank you for your word, for us. This very odd text, this whole book has been a very uh, remarkable story. Uh, Father, I pray that that this word would come close to us this afternoon, that it would come into our hearts, um, that we would uh, see our own hearts, our own character being exposed and revealed in this. And maybe most of all, that we would, we would see you uh, more clearly about who you are, uh, what you're all about, 
your grace and your mercy, your slowness to anger, your, your abounding steadfast love for wayward prophets and cruel nations uh, would be manifest to us, that we would worship you and want to imitate you as a result of this. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if any of you are into the Olympics, the Beijing Olympics started this week, very exciting for a lot of people, gathers together the best athletes in the world to compete against each other. And I, I've always had this sense when I watch the Olympics, particularly certain events, is that it's hard for me to like gauge exactly how good these athletes are. Uh, like, like when you see ski jumping, someone you know, launching off a giant ski jump, uh, somebody snowboarding, doing that, it looks really cool, but I can't, I can't actually tell how challenging it is, how difficult it is. A lot of the races, a lot of the, the events, they're decided just by fractions of seconds between these incredible athletes, just you know, inches of space or uh, minor points on a scorecard. And I heard somebody make a really, I think, very good suggestion uh, for what would make the Olympics better, a little bit more accessible to people like me. And that's basically, you take an average person, just your average everyday person, you, you strap the skis on their feet, and you send them down that jump first so that you could see what an average person doing this sport looks like. You know, put some, put some figure skates on me, set some music, see what I can do, and then get the, the supreme athletes out there. Get me on the, on the skeleton sled, see how I do, and then, and then compare and contrast it to these world-class athletes. Um, comparison is a really powerful tool to uh, highlight both excellence and mediocrity. Uh, when you compare and contrast two individuals, uh, who either excel at something or are really bad at something. It gives you an idea of just how great the excellence is. And in this section of Jonah, we're watching Jonah go down the hill and demonstrate for us all what he's made of. This is the character Olympics. <laughs> we're watching tiny, angry, frustrated, self-pitying Jonah uh, go first, and then we get to look at God himself and see what God is like. I think you and I, are, we're often tempted to like shake our heads to maybe even laugh at Jonah. He seems very small. He seems very petulant. But the comparison that, that this last section in Jonah is giving us between Jonah and God, uh, it ends up actually being a comparison between God and us. If we read this story rightly, we ought to see ourselves and our own character being displayed. It's us going down the hill in the character Olympics. And so Jonah chapter 4 for us we're going to compare and contrast Jonah's character, read our character, beside God's character. So first up, Jonah. The story begins with Jonah, freshly angry with God's decision to, to show mercy on repentant Nineveh. When the story picks up here in verse 5, um, we see that Jonah has uh, uh, gone out into, um, to the east of the city uh, and he's built a booth. This is literally some sort of a, a, a ramshackle dwelling place, something to, to shade him from the blazing near eastern sun. Nineveh was a, a semi-arid, desert-like, very hot area. And apparently the shade of his booth isn't sufficient. He's a prophet. He's not an architect. And so in verse 6, we see something even better happening for him. Uh, a plant grows up. Uh, this plant, we just can't simply... Uh, explain this due to Jonah's good chance or soil conditions, the text is very clear that this plant is God's appointment. God had appointed this plant to come up. He had determined to send it to Jonah, just as God had appointed or determined or sent 
the great fish in earlier chapters to save Jonah from drowning in the sea. So in chapter 4, he appoints or he sends or he determines that this plant should save Jonah from discomfort from the sun. Now, why is Jonah doing this? He's so angry at Nineveh. Why is he positioning himself east of the city in this booth shaded now by a plant? If you look at verse 5, it says uh, he wants to see what would become of the city. And this is likely what's happening. Jonah's holding out hope uh, that um, with the turning of the day, when the sun rises in the east, God will change his mind. God will come to his senses, and he'll visit this evil nation with destruction. Maybe God will, 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 will wake up, he'll realize turning from the disaster owed to Nineveh was a mistake, uh, and, and he's going he's gonna to rain fire down on Nineveh. Or perhaps another way of thinking about it is Jonah's decided to keep tabs on Nineveh. I'm just going to stay a little bit outside the city. I'm going to watch to see if this repentance sticks. Um, I, I bet that Nineveh will just return to its regular cruel and violent ways. Whatever the reason is, what, what Jonah is engaged in, uh, you could call it moralistic rubbernecking. Moralistic rubbernecking. He, he's morbidly hoping that he gets the chance to witness God's destruction on Nineveh or maybe the self-destruction of Nineveh back into sin. This is what's in Jonah's heart. We're getting to see it up close. This is his character. He hopes the worst for this city. He doesn't want to see them succeed. I don't know if you, if you saw the movie, uh, There Will Be Blood. It's not, a, it's not a rated G movie. It's not released by Disney. Uh, but it's the story of an oil man in the 19th century, a guy named Daniel Plainview. It's a very interesting character study. And uh, it captures in this character of Daniel Plainview a lot of what we see in Jonah. Daniel is a very, he's a very complex character. He's angry, he's spiteful, he wants wealth and power for himself and no one else. And he has this, this, this monologue, this moment in the movie where he says, I have a competition in me. I want no one else to succeed. I hate most people. There are times when I look at people and I see nothing worth liking. I want to earn enough money that I can get away from everyone. I see the worst in people. I don't need to look past seeing them to get all I need. I've built my hatreds up over the years, little by little. Jonah is a pretty complex character, too. He's filled with resentments, uh, with these character traits that have been built up perhaps over years, little by little, anger, resentment, pessimism, vindictiveness. What happens next to this character? If you look at verse 7, the dawn of the next day comes up. And instead of the destruction and scorching of Nineveh that Jonah was hoping for, there is the destruction of his shading plant and the scorching of Jonah's own head. God appoints a worm to destroy the plant that was shading Jonah. He appoints a scorching east wind to beat down on Jonah. Again, just as God had been sovereignly involved in appointing or sending um, the fish and the plant to save Jonah, God appoints these more unfortunate happenings to Jonah. God is at work here just as he was previously. He's up to something with Jonah. Jonah's response, you probably don't need to guess what it is. It's what we've come to expect of Jonah. He's bitter. He's angry. He's hopeless. He's despondent. Verse 8, it's better for me to live than to, uh, better for me to die than to live. What's happening here with Jonah? Jonah has become so focused on his own comfort, his own convenience. Uh, He's He's so determined to see what he hopes be manifest, his own plans for the world fulfilled, that when they're interrupted, 
when what he hopes doesn't happen, he's undone. He feels like he doesn't have anything to live for, nothing left to work for. Now, as a side note, um, it, it might feel when you read the story that God is being a bit of a bully towards Jonah. Like he's provoking Jonah unnecessarily to react in ways perhaps that Jonah wouldn't. Maybe Jonah's just a nice guy, but, but God's being a bit rough with him. God's subjecting him to extreme circumstances. So what can you expect? Right? If you cut him a break, maybe we'd see a better side of Jonah. Somebody once rightly observed that when you knock over a bottle of water, only what's inside of it will come out. Simple truism. When you knock over a water bottle, only what's inside of it can come out. The worm in the wind... Uh, didn't produce the anger and resentment and bitterness that was inside of Jonah. They just gave an opportunity for what was inside of Jonah to come out. God is exposing Jonah in this section. He's revealing to Jonah and to us what is actually inside of him. If if you consider the same type of trial and and challenge that Jonah faced, and and you put it to a different person, you you might get different results. If you think of the Lord Jesus, tough comparison, (laughs) In his life, which was filled with suffering and trials and temptations, what came out of him? Faith, right? Quoting scripture and trusting himself to his father's care, mercy towards those who were abusing him. What was inside of Jesus came out of Jesus. It was revealed during these times of intense pain and testing. I think we often, I I do anyways, often... um, I think that, that it is people, it is situations, it is God himself that provokes certain emotions. Uh, it, it causes me to feel and to say and to do things that I otherwise wouldn't. You say, my, my coworker is so lazy. You know, she made me so frustrated. Or um, my kids are so disobedient. They make me so mad. Or you know, my, my health is so depleted. My bank account is so depleted. Uh, It made me hopeless and despondent. Now, these situations, I want you to know, they're certainly difficult. They're certainly unpleasant. But they have this unique power to reveal who we truly are. It's the moments of stress, not the moments of of joy and ease. Uh, The great challenges in our lives that give us an opportunity to actually see what's inside of us. Okay, so going back. Back to the character Olympics. We've seen Jonah head down the hill and we're unimpressed. (laughs) He is somebody who hopes the very worst will happen to Nineveh. He does not want them to succeed. And when his expectations are thwarted, when his comfort and his convenience are are put to the wayside, he's filled with anger, filled with self-pity. Next up in the event, God Almighty. What is God's character like? What, What do we see in this story about what God is like, who he is, what he's made of? What we saw in Jonah is how uh, pity affects a person. Um, uh, Pity moves us. The thing that we are concerned about, that we have compassion towards, it it affects our words and our thoughts and our deeds. Uh, Jonah is moved when the objects of his uh, compassion are affected. So so when the plant is affected, Jonah is affected. Uh, That's the power of of pity and affection for something. It moves us as well. What is the object of God's compassion, of God's pity? What is God focused on? Look at verse 11. Should I not pity Nineveh, God says, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left and also much cattle? 
Jonah's pity is radically self-centered. God's pity is radically other-centered. Jonah has compassion for a plant. The condition of the plant moved him. But God has compassion for people, and their condition moved him. One writer reflecting on the book of Jonah notes that this idea that God would have compassion like this at all is actually a pretty amazing thing. Uh, that God would be moved by the condition of his cre- uh, creation's fallen state is actually a pretty amazing thing. But that God, the Holy One, the Majestic One, that he would have compassion on a city like Nineveh, that ought to shock us. It, it really ought to give us pause. And this author calls this the language of attachment. This is what he writes. God weeps over the evil and lostness of Nineveh. When you put your love on someone, you can be happy only if they are happy, and their distress becomes your distress. The love of attachment makes you vulnerable to suffering. And yet that is what God says about himself. Throughout scripture, we see how human sin causes God grief and pain. While this language cannot mean that the eternal, unchangeable God loses any of his omnipotence or sovereignty, it is a very strong declaration at which we must marvel. God himself freely and voluntarily attaches himself in love and pity and compassion to a nation like Nineveh. Uh, when, When he sees their wickedness and their evil, when he sees the state of Nineveh, his heart breaks for them. When Jonah saw the evil and wickedness of Nineveh, what was his reaction? It was to detach himself, to detach himself from Nineveh. But God attaches himself to them. He hopes to see Nineveh restored and changed and helped. Now, there's no question that God um, hates the evil of Nineveh. The language in verse 11 is, is, is very interesting, right? This is, a, this is a city that does not know their right hand from their left. And clearly God isn't saying that this means they are not responsible, that they're not guilty in some way for their sin. Remember, when God sent Jonah to Nineveh, he didn't send Jonah to to educate Nineveh of something they were unaware of, that their violence was somehow a bad thing. Rather, he was sent just to announce God's coming judgment on Nineveh. Yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. Uh, Back uh, back in chapter 1, when Nineveh's evil came before uh, God himself, he sent Nineveh for the express reason sent Jonah for the express reason to call it out. God's not indifferent to evil. He is both just and he's merciful. Again, if Jonah is a complex character, how much more Jonah's creator? God is infinitely so more complex. God's justice is always merciful. His mercy is always just. These these two character qualities of God are not distinct. They're, they're, They're united in one. He is both just and mercy all of the time. So what God is saying here uh, with this expression, not knowing their right hand from their left, uh, what he's essentially saying here is that sin is not only morally wrong, it's pitiable. Like sin is so sad. Sin is spiritual foolishness. Uh, It's a moral stupidity that destroys you even as it destroys those around you. Again, in in There Will Be Blood, uh, Daniel Plainview He actually gets exactly what he wants in life at the end of the movie. He alone succeeds. His competition fails. He gets enough money to get away from every other person, and it destroys him, and it ruins everyone around him. He is finally alone as he wished, alone 
with his bitterness and his hatreds, and he leaves a trail of victims behind. The book of Proverbs says it this way in Proverbs 26, verse 27. Whoever digs a pit will fall into it, and a stone will come back on him who starts it rolling. Again, this pity that God has on Nineveh really should astound us. Uh, but like a top-level athlete, maybe it's, it's, it's hard to grasp how amazing this is. We actually need the comparison and contrast with an average person like you or I or Jonah to see really how remarkable uh, this attaching love of God is for a city like Nineveh. Again, from the same author quoting on Jonah, he writes, when we look at people, when we look at people who have brought trouble into their lives by their own foolishness, we say things like, serves them right, or we mock them on social media. We write, what kind of imbecile says something like this? When we see people of the other political party defeated, we just gloat. This is all a way of detaching ourselves from them. We distance ourselves from them partly out of pride and partly because we do not want their unhappiness to be ours. God doesn't do that. Real compassion, the voluntary attachment of our hearts to others, means the sadness of their condition makes us sad. It affects us. That is deeply uncomfortable, but it is the character of compassion. Uh, I read a CBC article yesterday. It was entitled, People are severing friendships over a convoy protest, with some saying it shows true colors. Just Just a quick quote from it. Over the course of the pandemic, there have been a number of stories of how disagreeing over vaccination have ended friendships and relationships and ripped families apart. The convoy protest has added a new strain on relationships, prompting some to sever their friendships and even family ties with rally supporters. Now, I'm not mentioning this article to to weigh in on the pros and cons of the convoy or or vaccines, because really what we're going to see is that this cuts both ways on both sides, the right or the left, or, or however you want to you pit people against each other, because this is the way that we tend to operate. This is the way our world operates, politically and socially. It's built fundamentally through detachment. Join this political party, not that one. We should demonize the other one. Uh, some people are those people, so you must vocally oppose them. You ought to associate yourself with this in-group so that you don't appear to be part of that outgroup. Align yourself with this community so that people won't mistakenly think that you're part of that community. God doesn't do that. God Almighty has attached his love, listen, to barbarous and cruel Nineveh. This was a vindictive and violent people, proud boasters, They boasted of their grisly and genocidal war crimes, a city so evil that, as I mentioned, early Christians used Nineveh as a symbol for the devil himself, and God has pity on them. He pities them. He says, should I not pity Nineveh? Should I not have compassion on these 120,000 people that are spiritually foolish? They are blind. They are enslaved by sin. We, We rightly often emphasize God's mercy to the poor and the helpless, the the, the humble and the weak, uh, the helpless. They are special objects of God's love. But at the end of Nineveh, we we encounter something that ought to shock us. We see 
not only God's mercy towards the weak and helpless, but his pity, his compassion for the strong and the mighty, for those too proud to see their foolishness, for those so blinded by violent pride that God just says they can't tell their right hand from their left. Friends, we're not like God in this story. We are like Jonah. We are people far more concerned with being connected with the right people and the right side of history than, being connecting, uh, than connecting ourselves in compassion to a sinful world that is dying under the weight of their sin. Reading Jonah really ought to humble us. Uh, through Jonah, our character is being compared and contrasted to God's, and we've been found wanting. Uh, we should feel tremendously humbled. And so the call today for us, based on this, on this passage of Scripture, is to, is to grow and to imitate God's own compassion, to imitate His love by, by attaching ourselves, taking on this risk of attaching ourselves to those who are radically different from us. Like God Himself, we're called as Christians to move toward those who are different than ourselves, um, seeking their ultimate good, hoping for their transformation, Again, by attaching ourselves to others in pity and compassion, it isn't an excuse for their sin or wrongdoing. But it is to say God commands us to love our enemies, to pray for those who persecute us. Because this is exactly God's own character. We are to love our enemies because God does too. The cross of Christ is this unbelievable demonstration of how deep God's compassion goes for his enemies. Jesus Christ was one who was mocked who was beaten, who was whipped, who was forced to carry by his captors his own wooden cross to a place where they would crucify him and strip him. And what was inside of Jesus in that moment, his true character came out. He was nailed by the hands and by the feet to this, to this, to this wooden cross. He was lifted up. He was exposed for everyone to see. And what were the words that came out of Jesus' mouth in that moment? Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. It wasn't words to detach himself from others. It was words of pity, of compassion, of mercy. Friends, while we were enemies of God, Christ died for us. While we were wicked and cruel Nineveh, Christ died for us. While we were resentful, angry Jonah, Christ died for us. When there's nothing lovely about you, when you were consumed by a, by a poor character dominated by hate and distance, Christ died for you. That's the love that we are to receive. That's the love we're called to imitate. Let's end here. The story of Jonah ends with a question. It's a very odd way to end a book. There is no Jonah 4 verse 12. We do not hear Jonah's response to this question of God's. Is he amazed by the unbelievable depth of God's love and compassion for a nation like Nineveh? Does Jonah himself repent of his anger, of his self-pitying, of his detachment and move towards Nineveh in pity as God himself does? Or does he become even more hardened as he cooks under the hot sun? Most commentators, they, they agree that the author of Jonah, inspired by the Holy Spirit, leaves us with this question so that we can reflect on our own answer to it. 
Will you hold on to your anger and bitterness and resentment? Will you repent for your lack of love uh, for, for the spiritually lost in your life and in the city? Will you hold on to harsh words and harsh emotions and harsh actions to them? Or will you rather pity them and show compassion to them? This is the kind of kingdom that God is building. His kingdom is not like any other kingdom. Jesus is the king of this kingdom. And Jesus is unlike any other king. In the midst of an angry, ever-detaching world, Jesus Christ himself attaches himself to you and I in love to make for himself new people who are fit for this kingdom. This is the kind of community that Christ Church Halifax is, is called to establish in this city. This is, this is who we are to become. These are the kinds of people that God wants for himself. And in our worship, in our homes, in our lives, may God bless us. May, may he help us to imitate and enact this coming kingdom and to love this king. And so now, may your trials and your temptations humble you by exposing what's inside of you. May you repent of detaching yourself from those you think are different from you, repenting of your anger and your hardness towards them. May you have more pity on people than on possessions. May you marvel and worship uh, God himself for his attaching love for you in the cross of Jesus Christ. And may you, by faith, enter this kind of kingdom and entrust yourself wholly to this other kind of king. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you that while we were sinners, while we were powerless, Christ died for us. Um, Father, would you, would you renew in us a sense of who we really are so that with thanks and worship, we can praise your mercy towards us. When there was nothing lovely about us, nothing commendable, nothing that would win your favor, you loved us. We praise you for it. Give us faith to entrust ourselves to you.